In coming to the end of the retreat, there is one very simple teaching of the Buddha which stands like a lighthouse on the shore of our worldly activities. The Buddha said that when we practice, wisdom grows, and when we don't practice, wisdom wanes. So there's something very crucial in this, which is that wisdom is not something which we get and hold. It's not something which we kind of accumulate and then we have it. But rather it's an understanding that we continually need to nurture and to ripen in our lives. When we practice in our lives, wisdom grows. And when we don't practice, it wanes, it decreases. So there's a very strong implication of this teaching, which is that the same effort which is required on retreat is required outside of retreat. And so often people come and they make an effort to come here and practice and put in a lot of sincere effort in the meditation, but then somehow think that when the bell rings on the last morning, it's like school out, you know, and kind of, okay, we did our time and, you know, we did some good work. But that understanding really is an understanding that's very fragmentary, and it fragments our lives into spiritual practice and everything else. And it doesn't work very well. We really need to see deeply for ourselves that our life is our practice. It's not something we simply do when we're on retreat. The effort that we make outside of retreat will obviously take different forms. You most likely won't be walking down the streets of Boston or wherever, lifting, moving, placing, or muttering mental labels to yourself, unless you're Sylvia's boyfriend. But the same quality of energy needs to be applied. We need to apply the same quality of energy to staying awake, to staying aware. Otherwise, what happens is that we fall asleep again. His Holiness Karmapa, who is one of the heads of the great Tibetan lineages, He expressed this very succinctly. He said, we have to do what we know. We know what to do. It's not so complicated. But we have to practice doing it. So the question tonight that I'd like to discuss is very practically, how can we do it in the world? How can we keep this energy of awareness, of wakefulness, of mindfulness, present and growing and strengthening in our lives, so that it's not simply a nice idea that we have. Mindfulness is a good idea. And then don't actually apply the energy to do it. 
How can we make our life our practice? The Buddha spoke of three fields of training. Now, what's so wonderful about the Buddhist teachings? You ask questions like this. You know, well, how do I do it? Or how do I meditate? Or there's 15 lists. You know, do this, this, and this, and this, this, and this, and it all unfolds. There are three trainings. If we do the three trainings, we'll be fine. The first one is the practice and the refinement of sila. Sila is the Pali word for morality or moral integrity. But this is not something we should simply take for granted. Now, probably all of us are reasonably moral people. And we probably think of ourselves as being basically honest. But sila, or morality, moral integrity, there's tremendous potential for refinement. So this is a field that we can bring a tremendous um, alertness to, to really look and examine our lives. How are we conducting ourselves? What are our actions like? Basically, sila means a commitment, and a strong, steadfast commitment to non-harming. Non-harming ourselves, non-harming others. And this commitment to non-harming draws its strength in our lives from two different sources. The first source of strength for this commitment to non-harming is the feeling of metta. Now, when we have good feeling towards ourselves, towards others, when this wish for people, for beings to be happy, when that's strong and cultivated, it's obvious that we're not going to do those things which harm people. And so the stronger the metta is in our lives, the more naturally a strong sila follows. There's a second source of strength for us, and it has to do with a very basic understanding which the Buddha called the light of the world, because it illuminates how the whole world and our lives unfold. And that is the understanding of the law of karma. Very simply, the law of karma says that our actions have consequences. That depending on the motivation of our actions, they will have either beneficial or deleterious consequences will be the cause of either happiness or suffering. So when we act based on greed or hatred or ignorance, it's the karmic seed of suffering. When we act based on generosity, on loving kindness, on wisdom, it's like planting the karmic seed of peace, of happiness, of awakening. So how can we apply this? How can we actually apply this understanding of the law of karma in terms of refining our sila, refining our morality? There are some very practical ways we can look at this. In your life, pay attention to the effect 
of your actions, right in the midst of doing them. Pay attention to the effect of your actions on the quality of your mind. As we do different things, what is the mind state that is actually being cultivated? What are we strengthening in different actions? Just everyday activities, you know, when we're eating, Do we stop and pay attention to what's happening in our minds while we eat? Or are we just doing them mechanically? Are we lost? Are we asleep? In talking, you've just had a few hours of realizing undoubtedly it's a strong energy in our lives. Just walking through the dining room, I was like, a little atomic bomb going off. We talk a lot. You know, most of our days so often is spent in some kind of communication. Are we paying attention to our speech? This is a powerful energy in our lives. It has consequences, not only for other people, but for our own mind states. We need to look, we need to be awake, we need to be aware of the kind of speech we're using and the effect it's having in our minds. When I first started practicing, I was still in the Peace Corps in Thailand. This was in about 1966 or 67. I was very excited. I was just introduced to the Dharma and the practice and teaching. I was tremendously enthusiastic about it all. And so I was just making lots of different kinds of experiments with my life, trying to figure out and understand and apply the teachings. So I'd read about right speech, and I thought, well, I'm going to take a time. I took a period of a couple of months. I made a vow that I wasn't going to speak about any third person. I wasn't going to speak to someone about someone else. It was an amazing experiment, because 90% of my speech was eliminated. (laughs) And it was really revealing to see that. You know, that so much of my speech had just been involved in talking about other people, not always or perhaps even mostly maliciously, but probably at times. (laughs) But in any case, I saw that it didn't serve much purpose. The fruit of that experiment was that as I watched my mind, I saw that because I wasn't giving voice to those judgments about other people, my mind actually stopped judging so much. It's like that, <laughs> that channel of the mind quieted down a bit. And quite happily, as my mind stopped judging others so much, I found that it stopped judging myself so much. Our patterns of speech affect the quality of our mind. Pay attention. Being truthful. Just undertaking the commitment to not saying that which isn't true. 
It sounds so simple. It sounds very simple, and we probably think we do it already. Maybe. <laughs> I'm continually surprised at, at how hard it is. Little things. You know, slight exaggerations for some reason or other, or not feeling uncomfortable about saying something uncomfortable to somebody. And so, a little shading of the truth. It doesn't mean that we go around telling everybody exactly what we think of them. Because there's speaking what is true and also speaking what is useful. It's knowing the right time for things. But having it in mind, having this precept in mind, so that as soon as we say something that's off from the truth, we're aware, we know, we pick it up. This is the refinement of sila that's possible. We can pay attention to the wholesome kinds of actions that we do, you know, and practice those and watch the effect of those in the mind. The Buddha talked a great deal about the practice of generosity, of strengthening that, of cultivating it, generosity of our time, of our energy, of our material things. This is a source of great joy in our lives. Now, if we pay attention to how we feel when we're giving, it's so obvious that it makes us feel good, it makes the other person feel good. And so a way of practicing this or cultivating it, which has been very effective for me, I've I've undertaken the practice that when I think about, or have the thought about giving something, my commitment is to actually do it. Not to simply have the thought there, and then either out of laziness let it go, or doubt. You know, the thought comes, it's a generous impulse, but then the doubt comes, mm, you know, maybe I'll need it, maybe it's too much, maybe they won't understand, maybe I shouldn't do it. Not listening. To, those, to that voice of Mara. The thought of generosity arises, the practice of doing it. It has had such wonderful consequences. And it strengthens that part of our mind. This is the positive side of sila. Not only refraining from the unwholesome things, but actually cultivating the wholesome. An image that I think is very appropriate in our lives, and one that we don't often give much credence to, it's like putting a bucket under a dripping faucet, you know, and how just drop by drop uh, the water falls into the bucket. And we normally think that each drop of water is very insignificant. And yet we all know that we leave the bucket there and drop by drop by drop, it gets filled and it doesn't take that long to fill it either. Each of our actions is like a drop in the mind, a drop either of happiness producing actions or suffering producing actions. We should not undervalue even the small things that we do. And this is the meaning of the practice or the refinement of sila, 
that we pay attention to the small things, to our speech, to acts of generosity, of kindness. Now, watching the precept about not killing, even not killing small things, little things. Remember the example of the butterfly effect. Now, the butterfly flaps its wings in China and there's a storm in Boston. One small little kind action can have enormous consequences. And if we do this, not just once, but it really becomes our life practice, a very powerful effect begins to happen. We actually begin to be happy. Okay, so this is the first application or practice of sila, watching how it affects our own minds, the different kinds of actions we do. The second practice is that of watching how our actions affect others, really paying attention. What is the effect on other people of what we do? We can practice this on many levels and it requires a tremendous amount of honesty, tremendous amount of truthfulness. As an example, just working with the precept one of the five precepts, refraining from sexual misconduct. Well, here it's relatively simple and easy, because it means abstinence. What does it mean out in the world? Now, sexual energy, for most of us, at least at some times in our lives, and often a major part of our lives, is a very powerful force. There's a very, very strong energy in our life and between people. So what does the precept mean? Not committing sexual misconduct. I mean, there's a whole long list of you know, things that are not skillful, but it really comes down to not doing those things which cause harm. Harm to oneself, harm to others. Is what we're involved in deceptive? Is it exploitive in some way? Is it really a vehicle for metta, for loving kindness, for care, for compassion? We need to look, and we need to look honestly, because honestly, because it is so easy to rationalize behavior behind the force of great desire, of great passion. It's not the passion in itself that's the problem. It's when our minds become clouded by it or diluted by it. So it takes a great deal of wakefulness. We need to be paying attention. On a more subtle level, One of the most interesting things to do in terms of our social relationships is to be paying attention to the effect of our energy on other people. We're relating, we're talking, we're with somebody else or a group of people just to be watching. 
I mean, do we go in and just crash into a situation without any regard for what's actually happening? You know, so caught up in our own story, our own drama. Or do we go into a situation with a certain delicacy of understanding that we're meeting another person, we're meeting another energy? What's happening? What's the effect that we're having on the other person? A principle that I have found very helpful and it reflects so much of the Dharma. As we're with other people in our social relationships, are we coming from the energy, are we coming from that space of inclusion or separation? And just to watch all of the different ways we can do both of those. Every time there's a judgment in the mind, what is that? Is that inclusion or separation? When we're relating from a place of metta, is that inclusion or separation? For thousands of examples, we can really be watching this. It's a very different world we inhabit. There's a poem by one Latin American poet. He said, if you want to talk, first ask a question and then listen. Well, that's good advice. <laughs> okay, so we practice sila by what that is moral the morality or the integrity of our actions by watching the effect of our actions in our own mind. What are the factors which are being cultivated? We practice sila by watching the effect, by noticing the effect of our actions on other people. Is it harmful or not? Is it separating or inclusive? We can also practice sila, practice the refinement of it, by paying attention to the long-term consequences of our actions, realizing that everything we do is a karmic seed. What kind of seeds do we want to be planting? The problem is, and this really is the great problem in the world, that very often what may be pleasurable in the moment actually has a harmful result. And what's unpleasant in the moment very often has beneficial result. So we need to be looking with a depth of insight, not with a superficial attraction to pleasure and resistance to unpleasant things. You know, there's a lot of food that tastes delicious, but in the long run may not actually be very good for our health. There are a lot of things, like coming to retreat, (laughs) which may be unpleasant in the moment, but actually have tremendously beneficial consequences. So we need to have a large vision, you know, not, not be limited in our viewpoint. How do we know? How do we know the karmic consequences of actions? Here's where 
a great deal of awareness is needed so that we can begin to discern the subtlety of our motivation. Because motivation is everything. Motivation is what determines the karmic result. Is our motivation based on greed, on hatred, on delusion? It's a seed of suffering. Is the motivation based genuinely on generosity, on love, on understanding? It's a seed of happiness. So we need to be able to look, to examine, to investigate our own motivations in our actions. I hope you're beginning to get a sense of what it means that the same effort is needed outside of a retreat as on a retreat. And we need to do this. We need to actually arouse the energy to do these things. There's, there's an American monk who trained in Thailand for many years in the Thai tradition who's living in England now. His name is Ajahn Sumedho, who's a wonderful teacher. And he said something so apt. He said, our practice is not to follow the heart. It's to train the heart. And I think especially in our times, that is such good advice. Because we hear so much about following the heart. Well, follow your heart. After 10 days of watching, There's a lot that comes up out of the heart (laughs) that is really not worth following. (laughs) And there's some that is. So our task is not just kind of this blindly, well, if it feels good, do it. It's really delusion. Our task is to train the heart, to purify the heart, so that when we follow it, we actually are following things which are going to be of benefit to ourselves and other people, will be the cause of happiness. The practice of sila, so the basic moral precepts, you know, and just as a reminder to you, we took them at the very beginning, Buddha talked about five very basic principles. These are not great ascetic disciplines. It's not killing and not stealing and not committing sexual misconduct not lying, not taking intoxicants which confuse the mind, which cloud the mind, which dull the mind. Sometimes I feel it's... When I think of how the Buddha must have been and taught, it's very heartwarming. It's almost like, I feel like... uh, He's talking to little children Okay, don't kill. (laughs) Don't steal. (laughs) But we need that. (laughs) We need to hear that. This is the most basic things. Because we need to internalize it and make this commitment very strong. It's a tremendous force for beauty in our lives. The Buddha talked of sila, of moral integrity, as being the true beauty of a person. Now, our culture is so fascinated with outer beauty, and it's so ridiculous. I mean, it 
really is the quality of a person's heart that makes them beautiful. We can practice this. We can develop this. We can refine this. I'd like to just repeat a couple of lines from that Galway Canal poem I read at the very beginning. He said, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness so that it flowers from within of self-blessing. That's what sila is all about. It's reteaching ourselves, our loveliness, so that we flower from within of self-blessing. So this is the first field of training. This is how we can practice in our lives in the world. The second field of training the Buddha spoke of is the practice of samadhi. And what he meant by samadhi in this context are those factors of effort, energy, concentration, and mindfulness. The very things that we've been doing on retreat, that we need to cultivate these strongly. On retreat, there's a lot of support for it. Out in the world, there's very little support. So a few simple suggestions for how you can keep this samadhi training strong in your life. Just let me uh, preface this by saying I see this area as the great challenge for all of us practicing Dharma in the West. Now in the East, when people have a strong commitment for liberation, for awakening, many just go to monasteries. They live in monasteries and the whole thing is set up to support it. Something different is happening in the West, at least now. And that is a lot of us who are very committed in our lives to liberation. We're not just practicing for a good rebirth or to win the lottery. We actually want to wake up. We want to be free. The great challenge, and this is what we're all discovering. This is it's a common problem, and we all need to be working on it. How can we maintain the discipline of a regular practice in our lives? It's tremendously difficult, as you well know. You know you're sitting here six, seven, eight hours a day. You think an hour a day at home will be easy. It's not. So, I'll give you a parting gift of another mantra. First one was, it's okay. This one is, sit every day. Sit every, say this mantra a hundred thousand times a day. <laughs> sit every day, sit every day, sit every day, sit every day. It's not so important, or it's less important, how long you sit than the regularity of it just to get into the habit. Take some time that seems workable and is manageable. Sit every day. The key to success in this, and the biggest pitfall that people find, be very wary of the mind that begins to judge the sittings, because that's going to happen. You'll be sitting, and there'll be many days when you're sitting and you're either sleepy the whole time or your mind is wandering the whole time, and this little voice pipes up, this is stupid. I might as well have stayed in bed. It's useless. I'm not getting any place. 
I'll have to wait another three months till I can get back to another retreat. And the voice goes on and on. Don't listen to it. See it as a kid in a Halloween costume. (laughs) Don't judge your practice. There'll be a lot of ups and downs. And even if you sat and the mind wandered the whole hour, it would be worth doing it. First, it's a clearing out. It's a little bit of a clearing out of those thoughts and feelings and emotions, even if you lost a lot. Secondly, it strengthens that commitment, that effort, that energy. That's what's going to carry you through the busyness of your life. I'd like to suggest one technique, but this is only for very extreme cases of you. You know, those of you who have tried everything, and you try to sit every day, and you carve out the time, and you know, you, it's just not working. Okay, nobody else listen. This, <laughs> this is just for these special few people. When nothing else works, make the commitment to yourself. that before you go get into bed to go to sleep, you will at least get into the meditative posture. That's all. That's your commitment. Even if it's for one minute. The commitment is that you will not get into bed until you get into the meditative posture. Because what has been discovered by many thousands of yogis is that somehow the really difficult piece is getting into the posture. (laughs) It's not so much the sitting. And people find that once they're actually in it, maybe it will be a short time on a particular day. Maybe it will be one minute or five minutes or 15 minutes. But you will find that once you actually overcome the inertia of this particular posture change, you'll see that it's not so difficult to sit there for a little bit. So that's that suggestion. Sit every day, even for a minute. The second suggestion, as a way of strengthening the samadhi side, is to practice staying mindful of the body. It's for this reason that the walking practice is so beneficial because you do it again and again and again on retreat and at a certain point it becomes second nature. It's like you take a step at whatever speed you just become in the habit of paying attention, of feeling it. Outside of retreat, see if you can practice remembering to stay aware of your body, to stay in your body. It's an easy vehicle for awareness. It's not so subtle. You don't have to be doing anything special. Whatever your body is doing, feel it. Be with it. The Buddha said that mindfulness of the body leads to nibbana, to nirvana, to enlightenment. So this is not a superficial practice. Because the body can be a very simple and effective means for staying awake, for staying present. A 
sit every day, practice being mindful of the body, really pay attention to the repetitive thoughts and emotions, to the tapes that play through the day, so that you get very familiar with them. And instead of just being lost and running those tapes again and again and again, acting them out, we begin to recognize, this is A3. Now, I've heard this 10 zillion times. I don't have to get lost in it. I don't have to get identified. I don't, don't have to act on it, necessarily. But we need to be watching. What's very beautiful about the practice, or something about it, is that you can do it any time at all. You know, you can be sitting in a restaurant and just kind of hanging out. Nobody has to know you're being aware. (laughs) Just be aware. You know, you watch the thoughts coming, you feel the emotions coming. one last suggestion for actually practicing this samadhi, the effort, concentration, and mindfulness, many times during the day you can come back to the breath. Even you, you take a breath break for 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, you're very busy, and you're with people, you're doing your work, whatever, just take a minute or two. And stop for a minute, come back to your breath. It's amazing how refreshing it is. It's kind of just brings us back to neutral, brings us back to peace. So when we start moving again, start relating again, it's from a place of greater balance. Okay, so this is the second field of training that we need to practice. First is sila, or morality. Second is this samadhi group. The third field of training is wisdom. We need to cultivate wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? It's very simple. It comes from wise attention. It comes from paying attention. And one of the things I so appreciated about um, my first teacher, Manindraji, I went to India and I was really looking for the teachings and went on this great quest for enlightenment. And I went around to a lot of different places to try to meet different teachers and ashrams. When I finally ended up in Bodh Gaya, which is where the Buddha was enlightened, there was Munindraji, who's this very funny little guy, you know, running around in white. But what he said made so much sense to me. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and watch it. <laughs> there was no hocus pocus and no great ritual, nothing. If you want to understand, pay attention. It's very obvious. So we need to do it. We need to actually do it. Some places that we normally overlook in our daily lives, which actually are places that have tremendous potential for awakening, one of them, pay attention, especially in times of difficulty. 
when you're in a situation and you feel like you're really caught, you're really suffering, something is not right, instead of just drowning in that or blaming other people or situations, take that very suffering as the vehicle for waking up. It's very strong. So if we know how to pay attention to it, we can really begin to look, okay, what is happening here? What are the causes of the suffering? What's happening in my mind? We can see a lot. Is there fear? Is there attachment? Is there defensiveness? What is happening that is causing the suffering in us? I'll just tell you one story as an example, but there are many examples of this. Quite a few years ago, something happened here. Uh, Somebody did something that I thought was quite harmful, and I got really angry. And that, that level of anger is very rare for me. But I was, and I'm noting anger, 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 anger. <laughs> it didn't make a dent in the anger. <laughs> and my whole body, it's like my whole body is completely revved up. And I'm just thinking about what this person did, and that's making me more angry. And the thoughts are coming faster, and that's only fueling the anger. I went to sleep. The anger, the energy of that woke me up at about four or five in the morning. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) The energy of anger would actually wake me up from sleep. So at that point, kind of woke me up and the feeling in my body was still going very strong. It's like tremendously revved up. At that point, a certain level of interest clicked in. And I asked myself with tremendous interest and determination, what is going on here? How am I getting so hooked into this anger? And it was amazing because something magical happened in that moment. In the moment that I changed my perspective and instead of looking at the situation and blaming the person, generating all those thoughts, blaming the person again, in the moment that I shifted perspective, and was asking, how am I relating to this that's causing so much suffering, that I'm getting so hooked in it? In that moment of the change of perspective, that mass of anger dissolved. I couldn't believe it. From my body being tense and tight and burning, there's just a soft energy. It was then very easy to go back to the person, talk about the situation, and resolve what needed to be talked about. I'm not suggesting that every time you try to do that, it's going to work quite so effectively, but the principle is very important. When we take an interest in how we're getting hooked, in how we're getting identified with what's happening, that is the place of freeing the mind. Not getting lost in the story. Times of difficulty. Could be anger, it could be fear, it could be jealousy, it could be betrayal, it could be unworthiness, whatever it is. How am I getting hooked in it? 
in the development of wisdom, watch how the mind creates stories about experience because we do it a lot. And then we live in those stories. The first retreat I did here with Upandita, which we've talked about a lot, different. That was a great, it was a vintage year. <laughs> he was, he was uh, staying upstairs in one of the rooms upstairs, and I was doing walking meditation outside. It was in the spring. And I'm walking very mindfully, and I glance up and I see him looking down at me. So I got really mindful. <laughs> yeah. I kind of started moving really slowly and carefully, lifting, moving, placing. And I'm going back and forth, and I glance up, and he's still looking. So it was a great walking period. <laughs> I was really mindful. But after 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, I keep looking up. And he said, I couldn't figure out what in the world he was looking at. So then I just stopped for a moment, and I looked more carefully, and it was a lampshade. <laughs> but my, my mind had created this whole world. In that particular instance, it served pretty well. <laughs> But we do this very often. You know, how much of our relationship with other people is based on our projections? We have images, we create stories, we have ideas. And we're hardly with the person at all. We're not really with them in the moment as they are. We're with all of our preconceptions. Just the development of wisdom is to pay attention to this, to come out of that story. Again, with his usual clarity and lucidity and incisiveness, the Buddha gave a very powerful teaching in this regard. He said, in the seeing, be just with seeing. In hearing, be just with hearing. In smelling, be just with smelling, tasting, touching. In thinking, be just with the thinking. In every moment, can we be there for what is actually there? So a thought comes, we see that it's a thought. We don't build, create a world which we then inhabit. This is tremendously freeing in our lives. We can come back, we can breathe that sigh of relief. <sighs> a breath, a sensation, a sound, a thought. Wisdom also grows, and perhaps the most powerful source of wisdom is the experience and the recollection of impermanence, of seeing that everything which arises also will pass away, 
And when our perception is very keen, we see that it's passing away in that very moment. Everything which arises will also pass away. We know this intellectually. We need to be observing it, noticing it, feeling it in ourselves, in our experience. For me, this insight, and it's an ongoing practice, it's not just one insight which we have, it's the continually seeing everything is coming and going. And it seems as one gets older to come and go more and more quickly. This one, (laughs) somebody was on some talk show once and they were commenting about aging. And it was a woman who said that by the time she reached 55, breakfast was happening every 15 minutes. <laughs> you know, and it's like that. It's just, where is it going? So when we know this, and when we really see it clearly, it raises a tremendously important question for us. And that is, given this fact of impermanence, And we need to really let that in, to be with it. Given this truth of impermanence, what is really of value in our lives? We need to ask ourselves that. An exercise that I do, which I found very helpful, I imagine myself on my deathbed, dying, asking myself, what I would have wanted to have done in my life. And framing the question in that way, in that context, we can get a great deal of clarity about what is of value. Now here we're dying. This is it. We're on our last breaths. What would we have wanted to accomplish? it's much more helpful to ask the question now. (laughs) Because now we can still make choices. The Buddha talked about the preciousness of this human birth. He talked about it in a very big context of all the possibilities for different kinds of births in different realms and all that. But even if you just consider the preciousness of our circumstances in the context of human birth on this planet, now we're really tremendously privileged. Some kind of karmic blessings of both having the interest in the Dharma, the interest in awakening, and the possibility of practice. This is very rare. So we need to honor that in our lives. This is from the teachings of Ajahn Chah, who was very down to earth. He was was a great 
Thai forest meditation master, and his teaching is always just very simple. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. If we let go of a little, we have a little peace. If we let go of a lot, we have a lot of peace. If we let go completely, we will have complete peace and freedom. Our struggles with the world will have come to an end. Well, I got to about half the talk, (laughs) but I think it's time. So why don't we sit for a little bit? In seeing, be just with the seeing. In hearing, just with the hearing. In sensing, just with the sensing. In thinking, just with the thinking. I wanted to also speak this evening about the expression of this wisdom as compassionate action in the world. So I'd like to close with something the Dalai Lama said, which really sums it all up. It's a very succinct expression of it. We are visitors on this planet We are here for 80, 90, 100 years at the very most. During that period, we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal, the true meaning of life. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal, the true meaning of life.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.